Let's begin in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we welcome your presence among us this morning. We love your ministry among us, Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the way that you inspired John in the writing of these words, in the remembering and recording them for us, for your church. And we ask now that that same spirit who inspired John would draw near to us and enliven our hearts and minds to see you, Jesus, in all your beauty and glory. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. The hardest that I have laughed in a movie in recent years probably took place during a speech toward the end of the murder mystery Knives Out from a few years ago. In that speech, the investigator at the center of the unsolved crime, Benoit Blanc, in a southern drawl, builds on a metaphor of the case as a donut, with the identity of the killer being like the donut hole missing from the center. And at the climax of the plot, as yet another twist unfolds, Blanc revises the metaphor, identifying yet another hole at the center of the original donut hole itself. He cries, it's not a donut hole at all, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut is not whole at all. It's all quite ridiculous. For all its absurdity, this idea of a central or integral piece of information without which the whole remains incomplete is actually one that applies to our gospel reading this morning from the end of John chapter 5. In the verses we just heard read, Jesus points to himself as the missing piece, the central figure, making sense of the whole. Now, gifted teacher that he is, Jesus does not use a metaphor as hilariously convoluted as Benoit Blanc's. But he does argue that he is the center, at the center of it all. You might say that without him, all we have are donuts. I was very proud of that line when I wrote it. <laughs> now, as we jump into the text today, it's important to remember the overall context. As Archbishop D'Souza outlined last week, Jesus is defending himself here, his ministry in these verses. This is in response to his healing at the pool described earlier in John 5 at the, the pool of Bethesda. And that took place on the Sabbath, stirring up controversy. And in that controversy, Jesus claims, declares, the work that I'm doing is the work that I see my Father doing. And that is making himself equal with God. And you wonder, did Jesus think that was going to make it better? It doesn't make it better. This is one of the primary points that our, the Archbishop made last week. Jesus, in his own estimation, equals God. And as equal to God, like God, the author of life, Jesus claims here, and as we saw last week, to bring life. These are, let it just be made plain, ridiculous claims. They are audacious and bold, confounded. And because of how bold they are, how audacious they sound, in our reading today, Jesus seeks to buttress them, to support these claims, making clear the basis upon which he, he can declare them. He does this primarily by pointing to the existence of witnesses. He's saying, I'm not simply a lone ranger. I'm not making things up about myself. I'm making these incredible claims with corroborating testimony. 
And the need for that makes sense to us, I'm sure. If you know someone who is making incredible claims, like I'm a scratch golfer or I've been to space or something like that, you're like, I need some corroborating evidence. Other witnesses, people to say, I saw it, they made par, they can do it. Or like, I've seen the SpaceX receipt, the pictures with them and like William Shatner or whatever. This is what Jesus is doing. He is marshalling other witnesses. Don't take my word for it. Listen to these other voices. Now, one more piece of contextual information. Jesus is making this defense in a highly religious context. And he is speaking to a very religious audience. Jewish religious leaders are the ones who are up in arms, who are calling him out for blasphemy. We might describe this audience, highly religious people as they are, as people who thought they had the center in their grasp, who thought they had the completed picture in some fashion. They weren't missing the middle in their own estimation. And in hearing about that religious context and that highly religious audience to whom Jesus is speaking, we might be tempted to think that, well, his words don't then have much to do with us. At first glance, our society, our culture don't seem very religious. You might be here and say, I'm not very religious. I don't consider myself very religious. That's great. You are welcome here for sure. But in response to this potential temptation, I want to say to you that you and I and our society may just be more religious than we think. In her book, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, that's an amazing subtitle, The scholar Tara Burton finds our supposedly post-religious age is in fact filled with proliferating spiritual options and self-made religious spiritual practices. She points to wellness trends and self-care and fitness communities. Using our metaphor, we might say that our age is filled with people who are searching for the center or who believe themselves to have found the center, the missing integral piece of their existence, their flourishing. Our society just might be more religious than you think. And you and I, in that religious space, might be more prone to thinking and living in ways that exclude Jesus from the center of our lives than we realize prone to filling our lives with other things, building our lives around different centers. Those of us who count ourselves as religious can often be prone to think we have the mystery solved, and we're blind to the ways that we do not have Jesus at the center, the ways we do not hear and heed his voice, allowing him to speak. And those of us who count ourselves seeking, who feel that we don't have it all together, we too might be prone to the distractions of our age, like the audience Jesus addresses, who listened to John the Baptist for a time, but only in a distracted, self-serving, entertain-me kind of way. One scholar, reflecting on Jesus' words here at the end of John 5, writes, the failure to accept Jesus is really the preference of the self. And that is a temptation, a challenge for human beings that is perennial that afflicts the religious and seemingly post-religious alike. So Jesus claims here about himself, the corroborating testimony he uses may actually be more relevant than we first think. If Jesus is equal to God and in him there is life and life to the full, then having him as the center is this absolutely essential, absolutely integral thing. As I was praying over this passage, reflecting on it this week, 
the opening beatitude of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount kept coming to mind, uh, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And an element of Jesus' words here in John 5 is this relationship between desire and belief. The audience he is addressing cannot accept his words, cannot believe in him, because their desires are misaligned. They long for human glory among one another, despite its fleeting, fickle quality. And so they cannot accept him and the life that he brings. In contrast, the poor in spirit are those who know their own lack, who know the void at the center of their being cannot be filled by any human means, and openly recognize their absolute inability to fill it themselves, who know their poverty, and as a result, desire long after, are ready for the life and light that Jesus brings. So theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To them, the full life that Jesus offers is freely given. So this morning, in the hope that the Holy Spirit might awaken in us fresh, new, deeper desire for Jesus, so that we might for the first time, or more fully receive the life that he brings, I want to spend the next few minutes to highlight the witnesses that Jesus points to that declare him to be the center of all things, and second, briefly, about how Jesus is incomparably unique and better as the center of our lives. But first, witnesses. In our reading, in John 5, Jesus points to several different corroborating testimonies. First, he points to John the Baptist, who he says testifies to the truth. He announced the nearness of God's kingdom, the need for repentance, and he pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus says he's like a burning lamp, like this raging fire pointing the way, just like the pillar of fire led the Israelites in the wilderness. Second, Jesus points to the works that he is doing, the the healing he's just done. These actions, he says, corroborate that he is of God the Father, sent by the Father. Both in terms of like the power displayed, like this is not normal human behavior. Your everyday run-of-the-mill teacher cannot do these things. But also, and this is really important, for the character that these works display. Jesus is saying, I'm doing the same things that Yahweh, Israel's God, has done for his people in the Exodus, in the wilderness, renewing, remaking, restoring what sin and the devil have taken. He's making things whole, and that is the business of God the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm about the Father's business. There's no discontinuity between the creation, between Exodus, the actions of God, and what I am now doing, recreating. This is why Jesus' actions, for all their miraculous quality, the amazing things he does, resonate so deeply with us. The blind receiving sight, health being restored, abundance and provision for those who do not have enough. These works are in continuity with reality with the true and good end that God has for all things, and we feel it in our bones. These are actions of healing, justice, mercy, righteousness. They're the actions of God. And in Jesus, he is saying they're being done now in your day by God. They corroborate his claims. The third witness that Jesus points to is the Father himself. And he specifically points to the Father's speech in Scripture, in the words of Moses in Israel's law. 
here and elsewhere in the Gospels, like Luke 24, or in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, or the Transfiguration, which is actually celebrated today on August 6th. We're not doing that. But in that moment, in the Transfiguration, you see Moses and Elijah alongside Jesus. This corroboration, the law and the prophets, he stands in continuity. Time and again in the Gospels, Jesus, the writers, make the point that he is the climax and completion of the scriptures. He is the central culminating figure. He's the missing donut hole. (laughs) Called Timbits in Canada, I'll have you know. I'm Canadian, so I'm allowed one educational moment about Canada. There's actually one more later on, anyway. (laughs) I know some of you are fans, some of us. I'm a fan of the Bible Project. Their videos online. And their mission statement is this, is we help people see the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. That captures something of what Jesus is on about here in John 5. That is, that the Bible, Scripture, is less than this collection, is less this collection of one-off stories, each with an individual moral, as it is this comprehensive story pointing to, crescendoing in the person of Jesus. So keep that in mind as you read it, asking yourself, how is it that whatever passage, whatever genre you are reading points to him? That can be challenging when you're reading certain passages, like you know what I'm talking about. But it has been the consistent conviction of the church since its earliest days that the components of scripture point us to Jesus, that he is the key to scripture and that he is met in the words of scripture. That is, you understand the Bible better when you read it in order to find Jesus. And, astoundingly, that you can encounter Jesus by reading the Bible. That is, reading about Jesus is different than reading about other historical figures, like Catherine the Great or Alexander the Great, any of the greats. They're all great, except for Ivan. He was terrible. He was terrible. But they're all great. But they're all historical figures. They all share something in common that Jesus does not. They are, newsflash, dead. Jesus is alive and can be encountered in the words of Scripture. You can meet him who brings life like no one else can in the words of Scripture. I get that many of us have read the Bible or know the content of Scripture. And even more than that, maybe you've been in context where the Bible has been twisted, used for purposes that do not line up with God's purposes, with Jesus' purposes. And that is a travesty. But what I want to implore to you is that despite all of that, you can actually meet Jesus. You can hear and encounter him in the words of Scripture. That means that even if you feel like you know everything in there, you can receive something. You can receive good things. You can receive life yet again by reading it again and again. I remember years ago, I got this incredibly encouraging email from someone I really respected. And I am a glutton for words of affirmation. And so I'm sure you can imagine how I read and reread that email. Not because I'd forgotten its content, but because it had this weight, this effect on me. There was a sense of encounter, of receiving the goodwill of this person I held in high esteem. Maybe you have email, a letter, a voice message like that. But that same sense of encounter is what you can bring to Scripture, the words of the Bible, the word of the Lord. We actually made a mistake in our liturgy a couple of weeks ago related to this. 
Each Sunday, we have readings from four different parts of the Bible, windows into the story pointing us to Jesus. And in response to those readings, other than the Psalms, the reader concludes the passage with some version of the gospel of Christ or the word of the Lord. But a few weeks ago, dun, 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 something different happened. I don't know, I, I, it says in my notes, some of you who are eagle-eared, but I don't actually know if eagles can hear well. Like, that's eagle-eyed, right? So I don't know what animal has good ears. But some of you, your ears perked up. Because in the place of one of our normal Bible readings, a few Sundays back, we had a reading from the Book of Wisdom. Maybe you're like looking at your neighbor like, I am not familiar with this book. That's because it's not actually in the Bible. Now, it's not like that reading just appeared randomly. Like, you're not next week going to hear a reading from, like, the Half-Blood Prince or something like that. <laughs> that reading, the Book of Wisdom, comes from a collection of books known as the Apocrypha. Books written before the life of Jesus and considered by the people of God, by the church, to be useful, helpful for spiritual instruction. But not for the forming of the church's convictions and teachings in the same way that the writings of the Bible are. It does, they don't carry that same authority. And since the beginning of Anglicanism, passages from these texts have been read in worship, considered helpful for the church. That's where we got the reading from wisdom. But the mistake we made was this. In the liturgy following the reading, we should have said something like, here ends the lesson, rather than the word of the Lord. Because that phrase in our worship is specifically reserved for readings from Scripture. And when we name those readings as the word of the Lord, we are, you might not have picked this up, actually connecting them to Jesus. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus is declared as the incarnate word of God. The idea being that the words of the Bible, the word of the Lord, and the word of God, Jesus, are connected, linked, mutually reinforcing, and coherent. This is why we read the Bible. Because it bears witness to Jesus, and because it, in it, we hear the word of the Lord. We encounter the one who is the word himself. And I know where some of you are going. Some of you are going, you're like, well, I, I met God reading Harry Potter. And you're like, you know what? praise be to God. If you met God through the writings of J.K. Rowling, fantastic. It is not the same as reading scripture. <laughs> I have been so blessed by, I mean, I just talked about knives out, right? Like, I have been so blessed by movies and all kinds of things, and all truth is God's truth. But the Word of God, Scripture, is uniquely the Word of the Lord, because it uniquely graces us with an encounter with Jesus Christ, the Word of God. The one who is the word of life and who has the words of life. If you want to come to know and recognize Jesus, the one who sees you, who calls you by name, you must become acquainted, intimately familiar with the word of the Lord. That's why we're encouraging us all to read the Gospel of John time and again, that we might recognize the voice of our Good Shepherd, the one who is our center, the one to whom the witness of all Scripture points. And we long, don't we, to hear his voice, not just because he's the central figure, but because he's a different and better kind of center. Even in our passage this morning in John 5, John's defense of himself and his ministry, his humility, his kindness, his grace are evident. And it's these qualities that, in fact, make Jesus worthy of being the center, the center of all things, the center of our lives. It's a popular belief that prior to Nicholas Copernicus, 
when everyone thought that the earth was the center of the world or the center of the universe, that that, was a, that uh, conferred an elevated sense of who we were, that we thought we were really important, and that by moving the earth from the center, Copernicus helped us become more realistic about our place in the universe. There's a remarkable Canadian, this was the second Canadian point, there's a remarkable intellectual historian named Dennis Danielson who wrote a remarkable essay called The Copernican Cliché, definitively demonstrating that that belief was not true. That yes, prior to Copernicus, the majority of human beings thought that the Earth occupied the center of the universe, but they did not think that that was an elevated place. They thought it was kind of like the drain of the universe, that they were lower than the rest. Just because something occupies the center doesn't mean it has to be arrogant. It has to be haughty. We are used to, aren't we, to those who occupy the center or seek to occupy the center, making themselves greater than they are, grander than they are, used to them being full of themselves and using others for their own ends. But Jesus here demonstrates his humility, emphasizes his dependence upon the Father. I listen and I seek the will of him who sent me. He doesn't act of his own accord, but is perfectly submitted to God's good purposes, even at great cost to himself. And that cost is, of course, associated with his kindness and grace. Even now, as Jesus is opposed and hounded, he acts graciously. Notice verse 34, I mentioned these things that you might be saved. Jesus says this to people who are seeking to kill him, to destroy him. And even so, his disposition, his desire is for their salvation. That is how Jesus looks upon the world in all its rebellion and opposition to him. Think about that as you encounter the world, that Jesus seeks even now its salvation. And that is how he looks upon you in all your rebellion, in all your opposition, seeking to bring life, seeking to bring salvation, seeking that you would come to him and receive what he alone can offer. And this is not simply a matter of talk, right? Jesus, to the end of himself, through all the antagonism and hatred and suffering of the cross, through that all maintains this disposition, this desire. He is for those who would oppose his reign and rule. He is for those who would seek to destroy him. He is for their salvation. That is why Paul can write in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God because he endures in this disposition. He does not change. He is for you even as you have been and are opposed to him. That is remarkable grace. That is such kindness. And that is why he is worthy of being the center. Because he didn't think equality with God was something to be grasped. He didn't think he needed to hold on to his position at the center. And so he earned by his death upon the cross this elevated, glorified space. And in it we have salvation. This is why you and I and all the world should rejoice, should welcome him as our center. And it means that we can come to welcome his word in our lives, even when it is challenging or confounding, when it's not what we'd like to hear, because he's for you, he's for me.
So we can trust his voice, trust his word. He doesn't seek glory from human beings. He lives only to please the Father. So he's totally free, free to seek your good and mine, totally free to speak life, to give life. So you and I can welcome as the, as the center. We can acknowledge him. We seek to know and heed his voice because he's so very humble, so very gracious, so very kind, so incomparably good. The exhortation, I feel, from the Gospel of John thus far is actually very simple. Welcome and recognize Jesus as the center. Receive him today by faith in a more complete way. Come to him in faith that you might receive life. Come to this table, no donut holes, but spiritual food and drink for those who have need. Your life is this mystery that exists with a whole at the center. But in Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and in him we are filled, filled with light and life, for he is the center. In him all things and we ourselves hold together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.